Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. My name is Craig Forces. I am here with Stephanie Carvin, this time in my office, Stephanie, uh, near the Rideau Canal. In, yeah, I actually got uni- lost getting here. Yeah, it's well, been so long. It's at the University of Ottawa and the law building, for those who know the law building, is a bit of a maze. There are students who should have graduated several years ago or are still trying to find their way out because they got lost in the halls. It's that lovely 60s modernist construction yeah, the brutalist, that everyone brutalist enjoys. Brutalist 70s architecture, yeah. Well, you know, so this is our first episode. We've been largely silent in terms of podcasting since our tomfoolery in, involving, uh, of course, uh, Boss Elf and Santa Claus as a tour of use of force rules in international law. Little did we know that, in fact, we were actually going to have a conflict, not necessarily between uh, Boss Elf and uh, Santa Claus, but uh, certainly a conflict that raised many of the issues around what we call you said bellum, use of force in international law. Uh, we're not going to, we're not actually going to talk about that on uh, today, which is January 9th, Thursday. Uh, we're going to sit back a bit and, and collect some thoughts and uh, have a conversation with Thomas Jeannot, who many people may have seen on social media and regular media, but we're going to we're going to spend a little bit more time on that next week, I think. Uh, but what we wanted to do is just catch up on one development that did arise uh, just after our last podcast. And that development, uh, Stephanie, was one that ignited some conversation between you and I and others on social media. And it was the Vavilov case. Yes. So angry. <laughs> I have so many feelings. It, for me, it was just really disappointing. But you know what? We were going to podcast right away, and then I was traveling, and it was a bit of a nightmare. But what taking the time actually kind of helped me distill my anger into three kind of sticky questions that I'm going to put to you, and you're going to tell me why the system of justice is okay, and I'm going to just kind of stare at you <laughs> in a harsh manner. You're going to work on your death stare. Right, to work on my death stare. <laughs> so yeah, I think what we're going to talk about today is Vavilov. Um, now, this was the case of two Russian children, basically. They were the children of two illegals, and we'll get to what an illegal was y- in you just mean, a second. The, you they mean that spies. in the spy sense, rather than the, the colloquialism that people have sometimes been using to talk about irregular border crossings. So. Yeah, and that's, a, that's an important distinction, right? right? Like, this is the actual technical way that national security agencies refer to to spies. We'll get to that in a second. So these were um, the children of, of two uh, Russian spies who had gotten Canadian identity and subsequently moved to the States. They were the case that that show The Americans was based on. Um, so they were found out, they were arrested, they were put in jail, and then um, the two parents were eventually traded back to Russia. Uh, you were saying for actually <laughs> Scripple. Yeah, Scripple um, was one of the persons I think who was exchanged. Right. So uh, he was the individual who was po- targeted by poison um, in uh, the UK, which we've also talked about in this. Podcast. And by poison, you mean a chemical weapon? <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> just yeah, that just was trying a, to keep it short. That, that was that was the Salisbury case that we've talked about on this podcast. Just a past. lot of aspects to this case is <laughs> right. what we're saying. So the two individuals who were in this case were basically these, uh, you know, again the children. And uh, when their parents were arrested, uh, no, I said they were stripped of their Canadian citizenship, and you corrected me. Why? Yeah, so I, I'm I'm a bit wary in terms of talking about stripped or revocation. Uh, revocation is a is a quite different legal concept. We can come back to that in a second. The problem here was that at the time that the Vavilov brothers were born, the their parents were living in Canada under assumed identities, and this is where we have to have that conversation about illegals. Yes, but they were not, in fact, the people they purported to be. Right. And so, in fact, the parents were a Miss Vavilov and a Mr. Berekov who were, at that time, part of Directorate S of the SVR, that is the Foreign Intelligence Service of Russia, and they were what's known as illegals, assuming Canadian identity, and on the strength of that Canadian identity, uh, they were in Canada, and then their children were born in Canada, but thereafter, very quickly after the birth, I think within a year, the family had moved out of Canada, in fact, had no contact with Canada thereafter, as you say, and ultimately ending up in in, uh, the United States. And so what happened is that the, these facts were, I suppose, murky for the citizenship office. Initially, all this came to light. They withdrew the citizenship uh, certificate, which then provoked the judicial review that went to federal court, up to federal court of appeal, and then up to the Supreme Court. And that's the case that we're talking about today, the Supreme Court's holding. Now, perhaps before we start getting into the minutiae here, it's probably worth talking about this concept of illegals that we've alluded yeah, to. there's a lot we need to unpack here. There's, there's a lot of weird uh, concepts like illegals and this thing I'd never heard of before, which is called admin law, which is apparently something you actually teach. You're actually paid to teach that. So uh, you're going to explain to me it's, what that it's is. It's a lot more interesting than it sounds. It's okay. The So illegals. Illegals are, again, it's like, so if you've seen the show The Americans, that's what the illegals are. So typically national security agencies refer to 
two kinds of, of, of spies. So you have within embassies, you have legals. So these are people who have diplomatic cover, right? right? They're often like the third political secretary of, uh, you know, the, the, the political section of the office. You know, they have some kind of diplomatic position, which gives them a right to be in Canada, right? So that's, that's one kind of, of, of spy I should say, actually, also, there are spies in Canada who are declared to the Canadian government. These are the liaison officers. So, actually, there's probably a third kind, too. But the kind we're talking about here today but, but, are the illegals. But but whether they're declared or not declared, there's this category who enjoy diplomatic uh, immunities and viability. Right. And so they are what's known as a, a official a cover, as opposed to non-official cover. Exactly. Which is what you're talking about now in terms of illegals. And so, yeah, so when we had, um, getting back to the Scripple case, um, one of the retaliatory things that Canada did, along with uh, quite a number of other states, is we uh, basically declared those individuals persona non grata. Right, the declared or the the people who we suspected effectively of being spies. All, in the all of them embassy. enjoyed diplomatic immunity, and so they were they could be removed but not charged. Yeah. So yeah, then that you do that through PNG. Right. Right. So in this case, these are individuals who come to Canada uh, as you know a, under a false persona. Right. So they come in and Canada has actually had a very long history of this. There's actually a, a decent book called Shattered Illusions, which is about a case of uh, Yuvingi Brick, uh, who is someone who came over to Canada under a false Canadian identity and was uh, basically going to be tasked with, uh, you know, engaging in espionage, possibly moving to another country and uh, was subsequently caught and, uh, you know, changed his mind um, and decides to uh, defect to Canada, but continues to spy on Russia. So he's effectively a double agent. The Russians figured this out actually through a Canadian trader. And then he was sent back to Russia. It's a a complicated story. Read the book, Shattered Illusions. It's it's pretty entertaining. Um, But so effectively what happens is these individuals come. uh, The Russians were pretty good at uh, looking at Canadian records. And one of the things that about Canada is, uh, and I still don't think we do this is linking birth records to death records so what they could do is find uh canadians who had died often as children and then what they would do is assume the identity of that child Uh, and this happened all throughout the cold war uh and then they would come to canada often on a false document or alternatively they would take the documents of canadians who had emigrated to russia or the soviet union for whatever reason and uh they would set up uh their their identity here and so uh, there was a lot about uh, Canadian passports, Canadian documentation that enabled the Soviet Union to use Canada as a really good place for these people to build up false personas. Now, the Russians didn't necessarily want to, or the Soviets, I should say, didn't necessarily want to uh, spy on Canada per se. A lot of the times they would build up Canadian uh, identities and then move to another country, which is exactly what happened in the Vavilov case, but happened in several other cases. You know, there's, I think there was a sense that people trust Canadians. They like Canadians. So if you can actually have a Canadian identity, not only is it rel- was it relatively easy to forge, it's actually was, you know, people tend to trust Canadians as opposed to other nationalities. So it was a good cover to have. Let, let me just also interject there. There's actually a passage in the citizenship registrar's decision at least the analyst who supported that decision, talking about this phenomena in the past of Russian and Soviet illegals, a passage from a book called Biological Espionage about the SVR, that is the Russian Foreign Intelligence Service, the successor of of the fissioned uh, KGB, so the KGB after the decline of the Soviet Union and their conversion to Russia, the foreign intelligence aspect was carved off to the SVR. And so for the SVR, this book reads, Canada is an attractive country. As an illegal who has the citizenship of any country in the British Commonwealth finds that it is easier to cross borders and passport controls to move around the world and operate in many countries. And then there's a documentation in this in this um, this decision that outlines past instances of illegals, including the case from the mid-1990s that may ring a bell, the Lamberts. Yes. That was their assumed name. Yeah. And then a little bit later, Mr. Hampel. These yes. were individuals who uh, were illegals, and they ultimately removed another instrument that uh, probably listeners of this podcast are familiar with, the famous immigration security certificate. And so we think about security certificates often now, post 9-11, is being used in relation to those who are believed to have some affiliation with terrorism and are non-nationals and are subject to removal. Well, the security certificate has a history also being used for uh, Russian illegals. 
Right. So, okay, so I think this brings us to the actual judgment of mm. what actually happened. So we've kind of set the stage of of what these individuals or what their parents at least were doing. Uh, yeah, so the so the context, the legal context here is Look, the, the citizenship system in Canada is predicated largely on two expectations. We b- employ both what's known as jus sanguinis, that is descent uh, through blood. And so if your parents are Canadian, oh, right. so, sanguine, so, so too, blood. Right. Right. Okay. So, so too are you. And we also have what's known as jus soli. Right. Uh, and we're one of, the, one of the countries that has a very expansive concept of jus soli, which is if you're born on the territory of Canada, then you are Canadian as well. Uh, of course... There are exceptions, right? And so in the context of use sanguinis, it's obviously, it should be obvious in this case, that if your parents weren't in fact really Canadians, you can't acquire citizenship in that manner. Although, in fact, the, the Vavilov, in this case, the Mr. Vavilov did argue that his Canadian his parents really were Canadians, notwithstanding the fact that they had assumed identities that were not theirs. And and by the way, there those identities were assumed, as I understand it, on the basis of a children Canadian yes. children who died very young. The, but, but coming back to the context for this case, and so if your parents are not truly Canadian, and you're unsuccessful in persuading the citizenship registrar or any of the courts subsequently that your parents really were Canadians, notwithstanding that they assumed this identity, then you don't get Canadian citizenship through uh, sanguinis, right? So you're left with soli. Now, it's true that the brothers were born on Canadian soil. They were born on Canadian soil to persons who purported to be Canadians who weren't really Canadians. The, answer, the question then is, does that matter? And so you have to find a, a carve-out in the Citizenship Act that would preclude you acquiring citizenship in those contexts. And so you turn to Section 3, Sub 2 of the Citizenship Act, and you will find that there's a list of persons whose children do not acquire Canadian citizenship, notwithstanding that those children are born on Canadian territory. And the issue is, what's the breadth? This is the ultimate issue upon which the case turns. What's the breadth of of those exclusions? They're built around largely diplomatic uh, officials. And so uh, 3.2a says... Well, it says other things, but I'll start with the most obvious. It says consular and diplomatic officers, right? And so if you're here as a, a consular or diplomatic officer, then your children do not acquire Canadian citizenship, even if they're born here. It goes on and says in paragraph B, or, or those employed by those uh, consular or diplomatic officers. And then in C, there's a provision that talks about, or the equivalent persons who work for international organizations. So think about the international a civil aviation organization, which is based in Montreal. That's a UN agency. And so we clothe those who are official representatives of that organization with the equivalent of diplomatic or consular immunity. And so there's these list of categories. And so the issue is, does anything in that list talk about illegals? That is, persons who are here on non-official cover. That is, assuming the identity of Canadians. The one passage that, that creates uh, some, some doubt on this and it's the passage upon which this decision ultimately turns. Section 32A at the back end says, diplomatic or consular officer or other representative or employees in Canada of a foreign government. Right. And so that passage is interpreted by the citizenship registrar and by the federal court on judicial review at the first level as including being broad enough to include illegals. Right. And so, because they're employees of right. a foreign government. So the question then becomes, well, what does that really mean as a matter of statutory interpretation? Is this where we get into the admin law party? Well, yes and no, right? So the let's set the context for our, for the why this is an administrative law decision, why it becomes a very important administrative law decision, and then this this uh, additional question about how you're supposed to understand that passage I just read, that is representative or employee in Canada of a foreign government. So uh, you asked me at the outset, what's administrative law? Well, administrative law is essentially the rules of law that govern the exercise of power by what we would call the executive branch of government. And so administrative law is really about regulating the conduct of government officials, not parliament, not legislatures, government officials. And as we know from past discussions, not least in Her Majesty and Right of Pod, generally speaking, the executive is empowered by, well, two principal sources, one sort of smaller source. The, the smaller source would be there are certain provisions in the Constitution Act of 1867 that talk, say, about the powers of the Governor General. The, the slightly more important source is the Royal Prerogative. Uh, Phil would say the really important source, but in terms of <laughs> quantum, I mean, the Royal Prerogative touches very few cases. Right. And then the most important source of power for any government official is going to be a statutory, statutory provision, authority, yes. which gives them power. 
right? right? And so it says a U Ministry of Fisheries and Ocean can regulate the operation of fishing in Canadian territories. Right. right. So uh, most, I don't know, I'm going to say a nine out of 10, more than that, 9.9 out of 10 cases turn really on some statutory provision, which accords a government official some power to do something. Now, the question then becomes is how do you police that? How do you control the exercise of that power by the executive official? In principle, we could imagine parliamentarians convening committees to look at every single decision ever made by an executive official. The practical reality of that is, of course, the size of the executive far outstrips the capacity of Parliament 338 MPs, 105 senators to police and oversee their conduct. And so what you're left with then is this concept of judicial review. And so the courts have an inherent capacity to ensure that what the executive is doing lies within, I'm going to use the term jurisdiction, within its scope of powers. My students will tell you I talk about the power pie. Does what they're doing lie within that pie pie of power that they've been accorded, that slice of pie? now I'm interested. (laughs) Right. Um, And so that's really what administrative law is about. It's about ensuring that the executive, first of all, has the power it purports to have, exercises that power within the bounds of that power, and then is subject to some sort of review after the fact to ascertain whether that, in fact, uh, has been properly exercised. Now, because this was the thing that, like, okay, so, like, there's, like, apparently admin law Twitter. This is a thing. Mm. Um, Everyone was going crazy about this because apparently our system for doing this was a total disaster. And so from, so so really there was two kind of aspects of this case, and we'll get into my anger later. There's the national security aspect, I think. But then there's also the fact that, like, the way we make these decisions was so uh, chaotic that people were really looking forward to hearing what the court had to say about this. Right, exactly. And 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 so why was it a disaster? Well, okay, so I I was definitely on team disaster, right? So... Yeah, I noticed. the, the, The question really is, look... So you've now got an administrative decision maker, a government official who's making a decision. Let's let's make a make it a visa application. All right. So you've got a, an officer who's making a decision on whether to grant someone a visa or not. Uh, so there's the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act, which has provisions specifying standards and expectations about how you're supposed to issue visas. Uh, so there's a statutory framework in which you're operating. There's also even in the absence of any specificity in the statute, there's also an expectation that you'll act fairly, right? And so there's a common law concept that says that uh, administrative decision makers, when they're exercising powers in a manner that might affect the rights, privileges, interests of an individual, are expected in the absence of some blocking provision in a statute to act fairly, which means that they have to give the person who's affected an opportunity to be heard and they have to be unbiased in their decision making. And that's about half of administrative law, trying to figure out what, what's fair, what's fair, right? right? And where does it apply and what are the sources of fairness and, and what do we mean by the right to be heard and what do we mean about, about a right to unbiased decision maker? It's literally half, even more than half of an administrative law course, at least the way I teach it. The other side of the house in terms of administrative law is the one that, that seems more intuitive, which is, look, if you've got a, a statute that says you can do X, and the, and the role of the courts is to decide whether, in fact, you are doing X as opposed to Y, how does that work? That's called substantive review. And forever and a day... So, wait, sorry, you have judicial review and substantive well, review. Okay, so is the same thing? Same thing. A subset of judicial review would be substantive review right. as opposed to procedural fairness review oh, or procedural okay, okay. review. Okay. I got gotcha. you. So substantive review, and that has traditionally turned effectively on, did you make, as a decision maker, an error of law? You know, did you misread your statute? Right. And that's an important consideration for this case, as we'll come back to. Did you make an error of fact? Right. In other words, were you operating on a series of factual suppositions that turned out not to be... In fact, this, the factual uh, record. And and last, uh, and I'm being quite generic here, but last there'd be what, what's called an abuse of discretion. Abuse of discretion is you have the power, yes. But you overused it. Or well, or used way. it for an improper purpose. And okay. so the most famous instance of this, although it's not technically an administrative law case, is Ron, is Ron Corelli versus Duplessis. This was a, I love this case. It's a 1950s case of the Supreme Court. Mr. Ron Corelli was posting bail for Jehovah Witnesses at the same time that Mr. Duplessis, who was the premier of Quebec, was trying to crack down on Jehovah Witnesses. It's like the, the, there's this strong animus that Mr. Duplessis had towards Jehovah Witnesses. And so because Mr. Ron Corelli was posting bail for these people who were being locked up on various, you know, municipal bylaw, padlock laws, and for improper soliciting when they came to the door, the sort of stuff. He was posting bail for these people. Um, uh, Duplessis turned around and stripped his liquor license away from Ron Corelli's restaurant. 
uh, he leaned on the on the commissioner of liquor licenses in Quebec and said, "Take away Ron Corelli's uh, liquor license." Right. So technically, he had the authority to do that, Precisely. but it was for the wrong reason. Exactly. And right. So that okay. would be called an abuse of discretion. That was a jerk thing to do. Yeah. Well, and so it's a classic example, and you can see how it doesn't line up with the concept of the rule of law, which Absolutely. we spent some time talking about. Right. You only have the powers as an executive official that the law gives you. Um, and if you're using those powers for these capricious reasons, for bad faith, et cetera, that's not comporting with uh, the expectations uh, under which you were given this power in the first place. So admin law, surprisingly so, so, interesting. So, so that's that's the easy right. part, right? Okay. The more complicated part is that the courts start to get really preoccupied about how tender they have to be, how deferential they have to be in assessing these substantive grounds. In other words, do they have to... Uh, are they supposed to look at what the the decision maker said and say, oh, that's not how we would read the law. We would read the law very differently, and therefore we're going to quash your decision. Or do they say, well, you know, that's not necessarily how we would read the law, but you're the expert. We're the generalist court, and you're the expert, um, and we can kind of see how you got there, and so we're going to be a little bit deferential in terms right. of how we assess your interpretation of the law. And while it may not be the decision we would make, at least it's reasonable. All right, and so there's this tension in the jurisprudence going back to the 1970s as to when you owe this kind of deference and what this deference amounts to. And the court keeps going every decade effectively. It, goes, it changes the test, um, and in part because it's trying to find this sort of perfect formula for deciding how much deference to award, and then this kind of perfect formula for deciding what gradients of deference you owe in what circumstance. So this is where the mess is, is this that is no where one the really knows is. what to do. Right, and so because... Right. Um, There's and, no, it's and, inconsistent. And, and, and you know, I have a strong legal realist bent, and, and in part... What does that mean? Well, it, it means that, a, 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 you know, the legal theories only take you so far, and, and that the judging is a, is a human process. And I have some skepticism that judging is always dependent on the application, the cold-eyed application of an algorithm, but rather has a lot to do with the individual propensities of judges. Um, and so I'm, I don't want to overstate the case, but uh, when it comes to these sorts of really obscure, hyper-subjective tests that, that have the, they bear the imprint of, of having sort of an algorithmic aspect, at least in, in some of their forms, but there's so much subjectivity baked in that uh, the standard review test that is deciding how much deference you owe in these sorts of cases is one that you can always reverse engineer. So you may be a judge and you might be saying, there's something wrong with this case. This, I think this case was really terrible and, and something about it really bothers me. And you can reverse engineer uh, the justification to comport with the standard review test and it'd be unassailable, right? And so it, it, the, the test itself almost puts the cart in front of the horse, in my view, as a sort of a, uh, from a legal realist perspective, because there's a lot of verbiage that doesn't necessarily change the outcome of the decision-making. Now, I know that there are people listening to this whose heads are probably blowing off. Yeah, mine is. Uh, who are saying, look, I mean, these tests really matter. And I, I you know, Oh, no, I, I just, because I don't understand, but that's fine. Uh, well, <laughs> but my, my view is, look, the tests matter, but within within a range of, of uh, you know, a range of reality, shall we say. And I think they matter probably more for appellate courts than they do for trial level courts. And, and the context here, I think, is important because it wasn't just the Vavilov decision that was being decided. It was actually three cases. I think they were referring it to the admin law trio. Yeah, the, the trilogy. And I'll, I'll, trilogy. I'll get to that in a second. It's so, worse but, than Tolkien. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but, you know, just again, uh, so the, to come back to this idea that this was a ma massive disaster, so right. you kept coming up with these different formulations. We had what was known as the pragmatic and functional test, which was neither pragmatic nor functional, um, which had four prongs, each of which could point in different directions. Um, and you could, it was supposed to cough out a decision as to what standard of review, that is how much deference you're supposed to owe. But then there were three possible standards of review. There was correctness, which I, I equate to hitting the center of the dartboard. So imagine this right. is a dartboard. How close does the decision maker have to be? On a correctness standard, they got to get the bullseye. There was something called patent unreasonableness, which was basically equated to irrationality. And so that would be the equivalent of, oh, you missed the dartboard completely. And we're, we're going to intervene because you know we owe you a lot of deference. And we're only going to intervene when it's irrational. That is, you missed the dartboard. And then there was an intermediate step, which no one really understood. So they gave it a Latin phrase, reasonless simpliciter, which lay kind of in between. And there was all these efforts to try to articulate what these meant. But, of course, it became, in my view, uh, angels on pinhead. It was, uh, or uh, the analogy I sometimes use is the uh, the famous uh, uh, fable about the emperor's new clothes, where, oh, my, my goodness, what a wonderful test. What a wonderful test, all, you know, draped in gold, et cetera, et cetera. But there's no but there's, sense to it. Exactly. There's, there's no real substance to it, right? right. And, and it's it's just a, a, a cascade of mirrors. Okay. So in, in 2008, the Supreme Court looking at that pragmatic and functional test, oh, we got to reset. This is this is not working. And so they reset to something called the Dunsmuir test. 
won't get into the details, but it tried to simplify the idea as to, you know, the test you apply, how much deference are you going to owe when trying to decide, for example, if a decision maker made an error of law or not. So the reset, I thought, made a lot of sense. But then with the passage of a decade or so, the Supreme Court kept adding barnacles. And by barnacles, I mean complexity and uncertainty and ambiguity and more and more that sort of crept into the test. So kind of weeds started sprouting up from the clean garden. Exactly. Right. And so you got to the point where, frankly, it became very unclear as to what the standard of review would be until you'd gone up to the first level of court gone up to the three judges at the Court of Appeal and then went up to the nine judges of the Supreme Court and then that Supreme Court panel might actually split, right? Right. And so you end up with a huge amount of uncertainty in an area of the law that should be the absolutely most certain area of the law because where do people have the most contact with the state in relation to decisions by the executive, all right? And so this should be an area of law which is, uh, in terms of access to justice, which is straightforward. And so there was a lot of criticism about the sort of post-Dunsmuir jurisprudence and without getting into the details. And I it got to the point where uh, you would do your best instructing this is to sort of draw the straight line and sort of uh, rationalize where the court was going, knowing full well that it was largely an approximation. It was, it was a, a trend line, if you think about it as a, a scatter a graph. Uh, it was a trend line rather than a connect the dots exercise. And so the Supreme Court announced unexpectedly that it was going to take three cases the, you mentioned the trilogy, so the, one of them was the NFL case about uh, oh the Super advertised Bowl, Super Bowl ad, ads, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and then it was also going to pick Vavilov, and it was going to and it announced it was going to do a reset on this question of how much deference that is the standard review in substantive administrative law. And so all of a sudden, which is take Vavilov it looked like a pretty straightforward, not that complicated on the facts case, turned into this magnus opus, this really important pivotal. Uh, administrative law decision because the Supreme Court pulled it out of its docket and said, this is the case we're going to use or one of the cases we're going to use to finally clean up this really difficult area of administrative law. And in fact, it becomes the chief decision through which the Supreme Court articulates its new vision. Okay. And so I know how this ends, but why don't you talk about the court decision? Right. So it does this. Okay. So there are basically two things. And and that's why on Twitter, you saw kind of a stark division between the administrative law discussion and then a sort of smaller discussion on the merits of the case. So on the administrative law side... Smaller, angrier discussion. (laughs) Uh, uh, Yeah, you were like the, probably in terms of mentions, you were like the the animating voice in that smaller discussion. But the... um, uh, on the administrative law side, it it basically cleans up the test, right? And so uh, our listeners probably have a a limited patience for me to walk through what they do to the test. But basically, they set a... Where they've been going already, they set a default that in relation to these at least substantive review issues. So basically, again, we're talking about alleged errors of law, abuses of discretion, or or fact-finding, errors in fact-finding. You're always going to apply reasonableness as a review in court, right? So that's the default, or you're going to start with the default of reasonableness. In other words, you're going to owe some deference to the decision, the underlying decision of the executive, all right? And so that's the starting point. And then they said there are a few exceptions. Um, And without sort of waxing on, Exceptions, the most important exceptions would be uh, where the decision maker is making a a constitutional finding, saying, for example, a given statute violates a constitutional provision, say, under the division of powers between the federal and provincial levels. That's the sort of decision where the court's going to say, oh, that's that's our turf, right? And so we're not going to owe you any deference. We're going to review you on a correctness standard. You have to get the dart in the middle of the dartboard. You've got to hit a bullseye. Uh, Another example would be something that the court calls uh, of central importance the Canadian legal system. And so in the past, when it's used that kind of expression, it's talked about things like uh, solicitor-client privilege, things that that, uh, are above and beyond the idiosyncratic preoccupations of any given administrative decision-maker and upon which much of the fabric of the legal system may rest. And so solicitor-client would be a good example, uh, that that concept of solicitor-client privilege. Uh, And then uh, finally, it talks about uh, where there's a contest between two tribunals as to which has jurisdiction. In that sort of circumstance, obviously, you got to get it right. Mm-hmm. Uh, there has to be a line, a straight line, between the, the partitions, the jurisdictions. Otherwise, overlapping jurisdictions. Right, exactly. And idea. so that, too, will be correctness. Right. But beyond that, we're going to apply reasonableness. Uh, and then the court, for the first time in its history, really talks talks about what, what we mean by reasonableness, right? So, you know, it's like it's, it's fine to get to that standard of reasonableness, but it's what does it mean in practice? It's only 152 years. <laughs> well, I mean, they've, they've sort of kicked the can around a little bit, but the, this is a very lengthy discussion of what's intended by reasonableness. And they... And, and, you know, this is what the court often does. It sort of sets out sort of a lengthy academic almost discussion and says, well, 
we don't mean to create a checklist that the variables we're listing here are not necessarily meant to be a decision tree where you just you know connect the dots. We're using it as illustration, et cetera, et cetera. The reality, I think, frankly, is the things they're enumerating are going to be the drivers in the jurisprudence going they forward. They effectively created a yeah, checklist. Yeah. yeah, effectively. And so one of the things that they played it, place an emphasis on is, uh, and I'm going to say this, some people would say that I'm overstating it, is the quality of the reasons. And so decision maker, the quality of the reasons, are they sufficiently rational? And do they uh, ad address enough of the important issues that we can conclude that the decision, therefore, is reasonable? And amongst the, the things that they're supposed to address are, they're going to say, not the formal rules of statutory interpretation, but at least some consideration of principles of statutory interpretation. So have you done that to persuade us that your decision is reasonable? And that's where we get then, I think, down to a discussion about how we interpret the Section 3, of the 3 2 Act. of the Citizenship Act. Right, right. okay. So, the, uh, so basically what this boils down to was the decision to recall the citizenship of these two individuals a reasonable decision. Right. And no. No. Right. <laughs> right. Okay. And, and more than that, it's not... Why? Like, in, ter in terms of remedy, <laughs> they, not only was it not a reasonable decision, but there was no other possibility open to the decision maker in this case other than to conclude that uh, Mr. Vavilov was a Canadian. Now, I, again, this is one of these Twitter discussions where the people have gone back and forth as to whether the Supreme Court really said that. I personally say that's that's the that's, a, that's, that's, the, the, that's the bottom that's, line impact, right? Yeah, that's so, the reality of it. Um, you know, setting aside all the fancy administrative law stuff, it really turns on what do these words mean in Section three two, um, and uh, three two, as I've said, has these three categories. First category is uh, consular and diplomatic officers. Right, and then that add-on on the back end about representatives, representatives. Uh, other representatives or employees of a government. Then the second paragraph talks about those employed by officers or consular offic uh, officials, and then the third category is such other uh, persons from international organizations. But the provision goes on to say who enjoy the same sorts of privileges as are available to those in that first category of A. All right, now this is right. So if you work for ICAO you get the same, same privileges as, as a diplomat. As, yeah, right, diplomatic and consular officials, but A goes on and also says, or other representatives or employees of the government. Right. Right, and so the court effectively says the only way you can read paragraph C intelligently is to assume that everyone in paragraph A, consular officers, diplomatic officers, and other representatives or employees of government embraces all only those persons who have diplomatic immunities. Okay. All right? Who doesn't have a diplomatic immunity? An illegal. An illegal. And so the interpretative exercise the court goes through suggests that 3-2 was never intended to, ex to exclude from citizenship children born of non-official cover, that is, illegals, who have assumed the identity of Canadians. Okay. And now, that, that, now, I, now, there's a whole other discussion, right? And they say that's yeah. consistent with international <laughs> law, and there's a whole other supporting discussion uh, behind that. But the bottom line is that's the way they read the statute. Okay. Now, I think it's a dumb way, but that's okay. Well, okay, so <laughs> let's talk about whether it's a dumb way or not. So, you know, I, I just had a conversation yesterday with uh, Gib Van Ert and, and Paul Oh, who's Paul written Champ. a lot about this, right? right? And, yeah. and Paul Champ as well, yeah. who's, who does a lot of administrative law and is an employment lawyer and both really, really smart uh, individuals. And I, I, I was a little bit preoccupied with the legal work that was doing by B, because, um, you know, without getting into the details, part of the court's reasoning was that it must be that employees or representatives of a government includes a subset of individuals who have diplomatic immunities beyond diplomatic and consular officials. And I said, well, who are those people? Like, can we identify who those people might be who aren't also listed as employees of those diplomatic or consular officials covered by B. And I said, well, who are those people? I, I couldn't really figure it out. And I think Paul has the right answer. He says that B, those employed by consular or diplomatic officials, means those actually employed by the diplomat or the consular official, that is personal employees. So personal staff in the embassy or those in a direct contractual relationship. Right. And not those who are employed by the government. And right. so the, the various clerical workers who work in an embassy, who do enjoy some species of immunity, they are employed by their foreign affairs ministries, presumably, their governments, not personally by the consular and diplomatic officials. 
And so there is legal work being done by that sort of extra clause, uh, employees or representatives of another government, that makes the interpretive uh, dance that the Supreme Court does here work. And so, so, wait, so, and so, so the, now that I'm satisfied that, in fact, that, the, that, that that's true, the, I'm, I'm fairly persuaded at the end of the day that the Supreme Court's conclusion is the right one on the statutory interpretation exercise. That sort of residual doubt I had has been abated. Um, you can see how this is like, I'm trying to understand this for people I'm sure are listening to. No, 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 but, but I just want to like go back to what you said yeah. there just to, to clarify. So you're saying diplomats have diplomatic immunity, right? They can't yeah. be charged with a crime. If they go and rob a store, we can't actually charge them with a crime, right? right? They, they can be kicked out of the country, but yeah. we can't actually charge them. Yeah. Then there's their staff. Now, who would be an example of staff? Their staff or the mission staff? There's so a distinction. Not right? locally engaged. Yeah, so locally engaged, if they're nationals of Canada, they don't enjoy they don't, immunity. Right. But but there's a, there's a, there's a support staff of the mission, and they right, have so the clerical workers. Yeah, and they have. I mean, the so the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic uh, Relations or the Consular Relations equivalent uh, has these different categories of people who work for a mission, and so it's not just consular officials, it's not just di- formal diplomats, but it's also mission support staff and also personal staff of diplomats and consular officials, and it accords some various gradations of inviolability. Um, and so it's not one size fits all, uh, but, but your point is you were just raising is that there's people who are engaged by the mission. That is the diplomatic mission. Those are employees of the government. And so the category of, or other representatives or employees of the government is probably intended to capture that support staff. Right. And that's, in fact, the Not conclusion. Not the diplomats, per se. Not the diplomats, per se, because they're already captured by the first provision in A, which talks about diplomatic consular officers. And then if you go down to the next paragraph, B talks about uh, the the persons employed by diplomatic or consular officers. B really captures those those personal staff. Uh, so uh, you know, in the old term the terminology, the servants, you know, you think about these classic diplomatic uh, context where you've got a uh, butler or whoever works in your personal residence who's on a personal contractual basis with you. Those two, those people also enjoy a form of diplomatic community as well. as well. Under yeah. B. Yeah, under B. Okay. So, so basically everyone in that list is someone clothed with some species of diplomatic or consular immunity. And so 3-2 is meant to exclude from a person from acquiring citizenship who's born of a person who has diplomatic uh, or consular immunities of some sort. I guess, I guess... I would just look back and be like, was it really the intention of Parliament to allow states to have little spy babies? Yeah, and um, this is this is where I get frustrated. But, we'll, but I that's the wrong that question, right? So the que- the right question is, yeah. w- what was the intent of Parliament, Parliament in creating three two? Yeah, and did they turn their mind to spy babies? Right. And 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 the, to the extent that the statutory interpretation history, uh, legislative history is available in the decisions so, and in the pleadings, it's pretty clear, I think, that no one really thought about this. So this, can I get to my angry questions? Yeah, sure. Okay. So the first, and, and I appreciate we're running out of time here. So this is exactly the point, right? So what I find frustrating about this is that I, I, I go back to the beer case because everyone knows the beer case. The court seems to have bent over backwards, turned itself into a pretzel to find a way to uphold something that is seems to me in violation of the Constitution. Like, it just came up with this insane formula to find that our stupid beer laws are somehow constitutional when it seems to me the very plain intention of the Constitution is to increase trade between provinces. Um here we have a very plain reading. Okay, well, Parliament didn't say this, ergo, it's not there. The court, to me, seems to be incredibly selective in when it wants to look directly at a constitution, uh, constitutional issue and say, you didn't say this, therefore it's not there, therefore this was a bad administrative law position, uh, decision, ergo, spy babies. On the other hand, you have a case where we're going to bend over backwards to somehow upload this. And to me, that seems inconsistent. So why is it that the court is willing, in some cases, to make these kind of very plain reading decisions, and in other cases, specifically national security law for some reason, which is why we have this bloody podcast in the first place, doesn't seem to be willing to do that. 
Well, okay, so let's disaggregate what the, the two scenarios you're talking about. One is administrative law, uh, in this case governed by a statutory provision, uh, regular statutory provision, and the other is constitutional law, and you're talking about interprovincial trade and the issue of interprovincial trade barriers and the extent to which you're supposed to interpret the Constitution Act of 1867, uh, which does have interprovincial trade barriers embedded in it in a manner that's sort of reflective of the modern reality, etc. So... Uh, I, I think it, you have to step back. So the first point I'll make is, look, um, I'm not here to defend every decision the Supreme Court has ever made, and there are no, decisions. No, that's why you're literally here. No. <laughs> uh, there, you know, there is part of the job of a law I professor is to not to do that. This to me, right? But, yeah. but, but you know, the Supreme Court, look, some decisions are more persuasive than others, even when applying these these tools uh, and interpretive tools. Statutory interpretation is an exercise, is itself a very subjective exercise, and you can make. Uh, statutory interpretation rules do a lot of different work for you depending on which rule you emphasize. And so, again, this is not, this is more art than science. But but j- just your generic observation. So one distinction I would make between how much invasiveness we might expect of a court, how much preoccupation with uh, the implications we might expect of the court. Look, there's a difference between the statutory context and the constitutional context. On the constitutional side, at the end of the day, the Constitution is very difficult to amend. Um, and so what's the job of the court? I would say um, in the context of its jurisprudence on the division of powers and Constitution Act of 1867 and the role of institutions, be they the Senate or the Supreme Court itself, they've been very conservative and they have very strictly upheld what they see to have been, I'm going to use the term original intent. Um, it's kind of Again, there are people whose heads are probably going to blow off at that. The, what they perceive to be the original intent of the framers of the Constitution. Uh, very they have American. been much more inventive. That's why people's heads would blow off. Um, they have been much more inventive, it seems to me, on at least some charter rights. So I look at Section 7 jurisprudence under the charter, and it's it's a wash with things that are logical, incremental steps from the prior decisions of the Supreme Court, but would be very difficult to predict from the thinking of anyone who was involved in the formulation of the charter. And, um, you know, again, that's not uh, necessarily a basis to criticize it, but I think there's two different cultures at play between two different sorts of, of constitutional expectation. But can you um, see how but, a layperson yeah, But Okay, looks I get it. This? I get that. Yeah. But that's the constitutional space. And when the court opines and arrives at a decision in constitutional space, it's it's very difficult thereafter to move the needle from that position because effectively it you'd have to amend the constitution. Right, yeah. um, on the other hand, I'm when it, it takes an approach, and you would say that the approach here for Vavilov was overly strict in terms of statutory interpretation. When it takes an approach, say in the administrative context, where there's no charter interest engaged, and says that the Section Three Sub Two of the Citizenship Act means X, well, um, in our system of government. It's entirely up to Parliament, and it's free for Parliament to change Section 3, Sub 2, to now include greater clarity around uh, the exclusion of a use soli for a person who's born of a, of a parent who improperly assumed uh, unlawfully Canadian citizenship in a fraudulent manner, right? It's, it, it's, it's literally the, the flick of a parliamentary pen. And so in that context, if you're a court... And, and this is where I have some sympathy, and this comes up often in our conversations, because we've talked about this in relation to the federal court's decision in ODAC, and we've talked about this in the context of the federal court's decision in relation to Section 16 of the CSIS Act and whether it has extraterritorial reach. Or, That's the... Uh, we, we've seen the courts narrowly construe... Bob, statu- Bob from right, case, right. right, exactly. We've, we've seen the courts narrowly construe uh, statutory language in a manner where there's a good policy reason why you might want to have a broader reading. Yes. So the question is, whose job is it to embrace that policy justification. Do you want unelected uh, judges uh, preserved from any sort of accountability to a broader public who have uh, tenure until 75 uh, and are very difficult to remove, deciding what policy justifications are the appropriate ones based on an adversarial proceeding in front of them? Okay. Or do you want a more deliberative process where you have the executive uh, and uh, who's typically going to table the government bills and then a deliberation by parliament itself? And so it seems to me, look, if, if you're going to take an inventive approach to legislative language, uh, there's a risk that the court is overstepping its role in terms of the separation of powers and because I, that legislation can be amended. I understand. No, and I understand that, but it seems to me strange that national security wouldn't factor into any of these decisions at all. What? I mean, and that's, and that's, that's. I mean, I, I completely understand what you're saying there. It's a really good argument. But how would you factor it in? Well, this is just it. But I mean, like, 
you know... So, we, so how, we, how would you reinterpret these words so that it takes into account the national security policy preoccupations? And and how would you argue... So let, let's... Let, let's is it re- I'm going to use the reasonable standard. Is it reasonable to suspect that we would allow illegals to have spy children in this country? And you take this very straightforward, extremely narrow interpretation of the Citizenship Act. And you're not really thinking about, like... I mean, to me, uh, and maybe it's, you know, I, I have biases and I'm from Oshawa, so there's like a whole thing there. But like, to me, it, se- it does not seem unreasonable to think about the larger impact of the decision. You know, you know, if I was, but, but a, if I was a, but if I was in a foreign intelligence agency, I would be sending every pregnant spy I had to Canada at this very minute. And oh. yeah, I understand it's parliament, but I mean, to me, it's like, what concerns me is that judges in this country have never had to live with the consequences of their decision. And you do see difference yeah. to national security in other countries like Europe, because those are countries that have had far graver national security crises. And so to suggest that this has never happened before in the Western world is false. And so I think that this is where I get frustrated is that Canadian judges have, thankfully, we've been immune from these major national security crises that other Western countries have had. But because of the result of that, I think there's a greater deference to ideas about national security and how it should factor into our judicial system. Uh, There may be some truth to that. Uh, Although, again, you have to ask Did the question. Did you say I was right a little bit? Well, uh, well, I think you're definitely right that other courts, and I would say, say take the United States and the Supreme Court and its uh, political question doctrine, et cetera, are much more loath to invest themselves in, in review of at least some national security decisions. Um, now, I think if I were to do a typology of the sort of decisions where you see um, this sort of deference, I'm not sure that it would that, that uh, the sort of scenario we're talking about here, where it was basically a narrow question about how you read one provision in a in a statute, that it necessarily would have been decided differently in a different legal environment. Um, again, uh, so this is a, a a narrow question of what the statute says. Now you can make the argument, and I would be prepared to make this argument, that again those statutory interpretation tools can be torqued in different ways. I'm just not having sort of run through this over the last couple of weeks, not sure how I could torque it in a way that would result in a different outcome, um, given the actual structure and language of 3 sub 2. And as I've said, I had that one theory that uh, Paul and Gibb disabused me of. Uh, and so the question I think going forward is, look, what are the policy implications of this now? And so, and so you need more regularized national security legislation. Well, no, but on the specifics <laughs> of the question of illegals, right? Well, yeah. yeah, I mean, I agree with you there. I mean, I think problem, part of the problem is that we don't update our legislation sufficiently uh, promptly. So we have known, at least since the Federal Court of Appeal decision, which was, what, 2018, that this is an issue, and there was a good chance that the Supreme Court was going to uphold the Federal Court of Appeal decision. We've had a lot of legislative time since 2018. This could have easily been fixed, it seems to me, uh, because it's a fairly simple fix, uh, and Parliament chose not to. And, and by Parliament, I mean effectively the executive government chose not, not to. Um, and so th- it seems obvious at this point that if you're concerned about what you've described, that is persons who come to Canada under illegal cover and they have children, uh, knowing that those children will be entitled lawfully to Canadian citizenship even if uh, the illegals themselves are exposed, and if we assume that that's a bad thing from a national security perspective, uh, now, I'm, I'm interested in your views as to how grave a situation that is from a national security perspective, because presumably if those persons are outed uh, and the children actually pose a national security risk, their mere citizenship doesn't necessarily mean they're in a position to do a serious damage to Canadian security interests. I doubt they'd ever get security clearance, for example, and for purposes of, of some sensitive position. And so I don't want to suggest that the, the security issue here is, uh, I don't want to overstate it, but I think from a policy perspective, you're right. I think it would be disadvantageous both to our perception amongst our allies and generally for Canadian purposes to leave open the prospect that you know Canada is a good gateway for illegals because even their, off, their offspring, even if the illegal is outed, their offspring are entitled to Canadian citizenship lawfully and get that Canadian passport et cetera, et cetera. So the the obvious step going forward is put in place a statutory provision that precludes this possibility. Now, I think the more interesting issue is whether you could ever put in place a statutory provision that retroactively revoked the citizenship that uh, Mr. Vavilov and his well, brother I think, has. I think it's done. I, I, don't, I don't think, I think it's done. I think, I think that raises all sorts of novel constitutional yeah, I issues. I think it's a bad idea. But, and I think probably at this point it's not worth the pain and suffering. But no. uh, prospectively, yeah, I mean, I think it would make a lot of sense to put in place legislation and from a policy perspective, it's hard to see what the objection would be. 
So, I mean, that's sort of where I come down. I mean, uh, no, and that's fine. I mean, look, I just wanted to explain to you why I was so angry. And I had to actually think about why I was angry for a very long time. And it really just came down to those three things that the the courts just seem to be so inconsistent when they uh, do a straightforward interpretation and when they turn themselves into a pretzel. The fact that I'm I'm concerned that national security. Which would you which would you describe this as? Pretzel. Oh, no, sorry, straightforward. Yeah. I think it's just straightforward. But that's what I'm saying. It's like, you know, and so in some cases, they seem to be more deferential to other factors, and in some cases, they don't. So then I was like, okay, so this is straightforward. Why does national security never really seem to focus, you know, come into these other factors in the kind of pretzel cases? And then thirdly, again, just this idea of, of you know, relative to other countries, our judges have had different experiences, and they interpret things in certain ways, and I look, I'm glad I don't want Canada to go through a terrorism crisis or like a spy crisis or a hacking crisis or any kind of national security crisis. We are so lucky. But at the same time, I think that any, uh, judges in other countries would have seen this in a very if we were Norway, if we were Finland, we might have seen this case very, very differently. Yeah. Um, and I think I think that's those are my three points. I, that think, I, think I did not express points. myself well on Twitter. No, I, I think <laughs> I think those are f- fair points. And. I also have been a bit distressed by what I would call the inventiveness of some decision-making, especially on the charter side. Yeah. At the same time, the court has been extremely, shall we say, conservative in relation, say, to whether Canada can have a national securities regulator or whether it's possible to do anything about the Senate without a whole-scale uh, amendment process uh, or uh, the Supreme Court itself constitutionalizing itself in the Nadon case. right? And so I think there is a real politic to their decision making, and I think there are there is culture that's grown around or up around charter decisions, and a slightly different culture that's grown up around institutional, uh, constitutional decisions. Um, I, I guess from the st- from the perspective of this sort of administrative law decision, where what's at issue is a statutory provision, I'm not uncomfortable with the idea that courts will do what courts should do, that is construe statutory law, and not necessarily embrace a host of policy uh, preoccupations that they're not necessarily expert in understanding. Uh, I don't really necessarily want the courts to do their legal job as uh, people who are legally trained while trying to understand a whole bunch of overarching policy uh, preoccupations that they only understand uh, to some uh, degree by virtue of whatever the litigants have put in front of them. You know, an adversarial system is not a great way to generate good policy. And so this conservatism, which I think is manifest in the Vavilov, case, this conservatism on the statutory interpretation side, I think it probably is healthy for the way our system works. And I think it's a conservatism, regardless of the context of national security, it could be other contexts, et cetera. Well, we'll at least have a podcast for a long time to come. So um, uh, yeah, we, 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 welcome to 2020, yeah, my friend. We friends. did a long podcast. It was about administrative law. Oh, my God. I'm, should we apologize? Um, yeah, well, but like, no, I think this was we good. We hereby apologize I'm glad we to did all the people who will, Yeah. Let's hope people were using, like, driving their... Uh, their Teslas and using autopilot because otherwise, you know, <laughs> people would have dozed off. All right. Um, so that's it for today. Oh my God. <laughs> and, um, and we'll be back. I think we, we probably, I, I want to talk about some of the international law issues in relation to this contest in Iran. Yeah. And, um, uh, and I know that we want to get Tom Allen to, to talk a little bit about the, the political uh, and diplomatic context. I'll see if I can strong our room. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Thanks very much, everyone. Cheers. Bye-bye.